After years of shameful inaction, the annual UN Climate Summit has reached new lows and is now being presided over by a literal oil corporation CEO. The need to reorganize the world's economy to address the climate crisis is clearer than ever, but the people in power are doing nothing. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but it's not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, there are these annual UN climate summits, the Conference of the Parties, right? The COP, you know, whatever number it is. So this year it's COP28. All of the countries of the world send representatives to gather and discuss the climate crisis. And at the end of the day, pretty much always they do nothing or nothing that that really matches the scale of the problem. This year's summit is especially outrageous because the president of COP28 is Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, who is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He is an oil corporation CEO, and he's presiding over the summit about how to save the planet, essentially from fossil fuels. He's come under criticism in the past few days, especially for this comment that I want to read to you. He said, quote, I am factual and I respect the science, and there is no science out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuels is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 meaning capping global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. In fact, that statement flies in the face of all the existing science, but just, just this situation is, is outrageous. Talk about that, if you will. Well, part of me wants to respond, and I recognize that it's frustration on my part, given the history that you've just summarized, but let me air the frustration. If you have an economic system in which you allow enormous wealth to be accumulated by people who are in the business of producing or distributing goods and services, then you have set up a situation, we call it capitalism, where this happens all the time and where the people who sit at the top of the corporations of the country, of this capitalist system, are going to use the enormous profits we allow them to collect to stay in business. And that's their job. 
That's what they get paid to do. That's the source of their wealth. That's the source of their power. So are we really surprised that they use this wealth to keep that power, to keep that wealth, and to keep it rolling in? Of course not. And they're not going to be slowed down because what they happen to produce turns out to be toxic or dangerous. This is the source of their profits. They get rewarded if they're profitable. They get punished if they're not. So guess what they're going to do? And we have all the examples around us all the time. For decades, the companies that became super rich off of cigarettes knew that they caused cancer, and they produced them anyway, and they advertised them anyway, and they specifically advertised them to children to hook them on nicotine early on so they'd be hooked for the rest of their lives. The same has been done with alcohol. The same has been done fill in the blank. I recently read in the Ethical Consumer Journal in Britain how child labor is involved in the two countries that produce most of the world's chocolate, Ghana and the Ivory Coast in Africa. Carefully, those companies celebrate that chocolate tastes good, that chocolate is a great flavor, that chocolate maybe has this or that medicinal quality, and very carefully, they avoid and do everything in their power not to inform people that the chocolate they're enjoying has a screaming child at the other end of the production process. And what does this mean? And what could be done about, no, 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 we don't have anything. We're not going to hear about it. We're not going to view it. We're not going to see the, the children who are suffering. And that's why the oil companies and the gas companies and the coal companies are sending those thousands of lobbyists to that meeting that you're talking about, not because they have to stop serious legislation against their fossil fuels, the lobbyists do that in the parliaments of the world. They do it in the congresses. They do it in the private offices of the politicians they regularly buy. No, the attendance at this conference is to control the news, the public relations, the kinds of stories that get into the press. They want their people there babbling the pre-prepared scripts to keep us from focusing on the costs of this kind of business to us and to keep us instead focused on the benefits. It's a hustle. It's always been a hustle. And as long as we allow these companies to accumulate this wealth, they're going to use it to keep that flow of wealth going. And they're not going to be held back by the science or the suffering or the desire to minimize pain that in a reasonable, rational society would in fact govern what happens.
Professor Wolf, that's such an important point. And, and a little bit later on in the interview, I, I want to get into what a reasonable, rational society, a society that put human needs first and the needs of the planet first, would do. If that world existed, what would an international summit on climate change look like? Before I do, though, there's there's one other piece of this that I wanted to point out to you and, and get your thoughts. And that is that in addition to the whole thing being presided over by this oil industry CEO, there are a huge number of lobbyists present at COP28. One study found that 2,456 fossil fuel lobbyists have been granted access to the summit. You could compare that to, for instance, people representing indigenous peoples around the world. That's 316, so about seven or eight times as many fossil fuel lobbyists as there are people representing the interests of indigenous peoples. And the list goes on and on and on. All these other sectors of society that have basically no voice. And yet these 2,456 fossil fuel lobbyists will be representing the interests of a tiny handful of people who have an absolutely enormous amount of money. I mean, this is really kind of a, a microcosm of capitalist decision-making, isn't it? Yes. You know, those lobbyists are either on loan from where they're normally sent to some state house across the United States or to the U.S. Congress to do their dirty work, and that's really what it is there, or they're at some mayor's office, or they're at some politician's office. That's right. They're there to do the bidding of who pays them, who pays the enormous fees you have to pay to even go to one of these conferences, to travel to wherever it is, to stay in the expensive hotels that cater to that. This is a whole ecosystem, if you can allow me the play on the language, an ecosystem of people whose job it is to control the conversation, to control the, the whole spirit of what is said, and to make sure the important things are not said at the conference. That's their job. They prepare the press releases weeks, months in advance. They flood the airways with their carefully crafted interpretations. That's why the whole notion is screwy. We're not delivering to people the results of scientists. And of course, scientists disagree. They always have. It is never a sign of the failure of science that it has a contradictory opinion or two or three. That's what science does. Test hypotheses, see what makes more and less sense, argue it out among the scientists. That's the best we can do. Getting to the absolute truth is not available any more than jumping over the Empire State Building is. That might be a nice idea, but that's not available to us. Science is at least the effort to get it down to a few basic points and then let them be argued out. Give the people the scientific information that they need, not the information bought and paid for by profiteers. That's a completely different project, and the two ought not to be mingled, let alone to subordinate the science to the profiteering. That's the reality, but the best way to prevent the profiteering from abusing the airwaves, the radio, the newspaper, and everything else is not to allow that kind of wealth, 
disproportionate to what the people have and need to be accumulated. Indigenous people, to use your example, are poor everywhere. They can't raise the amount of money that the fossil fuel companies can. So what we know about fossil fuels is a function not of what the science suggests, however conflictual, it's instead purely a reflection of who's got more money to spend on more stories inserted into how many TV programs that we watch. And we know the answer to that question before it begins. Fuel companies have that kind of money. Indigenous people, local communities, school children are not in a position to make sure their needs get anything like equal play. And that's going to continue as long as you allow obscenely different levels of wealth in the private companies on the one hand and the public. And let me remind you of a little statistic people kind of forget. The richest 10% of the American people own 80% of the shares of stock of corporations. Okay, so simple English. The richest people own the fossil fuel companies, and they want to stay being the richest people, and they quietly look the other way, even those of them who are ecologically sensitive. They look the other way. They're busy. So the companies they own continue to deliver the dividends they want and the capital gains they want by promoting mass confusion in the public mind, confusion that has this property. It undoes, it subordinates, it silences, it marginalizes whatever scientific information is inconvenient to fossil fuel profiteering. And they fill instead the public space with the people and the spokespersons and the purchased politicians who will make the noise they need to keep the profits flowing. That's what has to be faced, or else you're not serious about facing the issue. Yeah, Professor Wolf, I mean, when they try to create that mass confusion that you're talking about, I mean, one way is this sort of very crude denialism, right? That, you know, sometimes we hear, you know, far-right politicians in the U.S. spouting like, oh, this is just, it's completely made up. Like, it's just totally a conspiracy, the idea that there is climate change, that there's global warming. It's just a hoax. Don't believe any of it, right? Right. But that's not that effective with a lot of people because people can see with their own eyes the fact that, you know, there's massive flooding that happens every year. The hurricanes are getting worse and worse and worse. The wildfires are getting so bad that, you know, huge amounts of smoke waft down from Canada and, and saturate the air here. I mean, it's undeniable to so many people. And so instead of this crude denialism, what I think they favor more and more lately is trying to posture as the reasonable people in their room. Al Jaber, the oil corporation CEO presiding over the climate summit, I mean, he actually even tried to backtrack, right? So he said, you know, we very much believe and respect the science. He said that one quote that we read at the beginning of the interview was just one statement taken out of context with misrepresentation that received maximum coverage. They kind of prefer to posture as people who 
understand science, respect science, but they're the reasonable ones. They're the realistic ones. They know that we can't change things that quickly. That's just not the way that the world works. I mean, this is also a tried and true tactic of capitalist public relations. Absolutely. Their job is to control the conversation. So one of the things they often do is to divide up the audience they need to control into those, for example, that have only a passing knowledge, those that are a bit better informed, those that are specialists. That's why, for example, they always go and find at the appropriate well-known universities one or another professor who's willing to say what they want to say and who's beautifully rewarded and paid to do all that because they want somebody with a reputation, you know, this person or that person who's a professor over here or a scientist over there, and that'll be the person quoted and with the quotation delivered to the appropriate audience. Then on the TV nighttime comedic schedule where tired working people are recouping after a day's work and are not interested in professors or programs that feature them, they will have a famous athlete do something or a famous movie star do something or even, you know, a well-known politician or all of them. That's their job. Analyze the audience and try to figure out what's the best message for each one. By the way, they got the lesson on how to do this, all of these lobbyists, from the advertising business. That's where all this comes from anyway. If I'm selling automobiles, I want to sell one kind of car at a super high price to the richest people. I'm not going to advertise my Mercedes-Benz to people who haven't got enough money uh, to buy the poorest, littlest car. I do one kind of advertising to one kind of audience and another kind of advertising in a different way to the other audience. My bottom line is to sell as many cars at the, at the best prices I can get to all the different audiences. And that's exactly copied by the lobbyists, who, by the way, often are people who are working for an advertising firm, either at the same time or did so beforehand and got a job as a lobbyist precisely because they had experience in the advertising industry. They're not there to adequately assess the science, which most of them are not qualified to do in the first place. No one cares about how much they know about the pollutant, in this case, the fossil fuel. They're there to articulate a message. If they hire a few scientists, it's those that are on the take and have the best ability to craft the PR that they're using to reach an audience of partially educated people, some people with you know, a knowledge of the industry for that small part usually of the public relations aimed at those people. They've also written off people that are knowledgeable, that really care about the issue. They're not gonna reach them, they know it, they don't bother. There the job is not to contest with another point of view. There the whole approach might be different. 
find something unpleasant about a spokesman for the other point of view and make sure that gets out there to undercut people's willingness to listen to a person who actually has the credentials to talk about the science. There's no limit to what this is all about because it's really all about making money. That's the dominant objective. Look, we have a capitalist system that puts that at the top of the to-do list for every corporate executive. We can't then be surprised that what that means is that all of the other issues about social life take a second, third, or fourth level priority below profiteering, and we have to live with the result so long as we're not ready to challenge the system that produces that result. Well, Professor Wolf, let's say that we did have a different system. In a system where working people are in power rather than oil corporation CEOs or lobbyists or the politicians who they buy off, I mean, how would the world be dealing with this crisis? If private property, if the private property rights, if the right to profit wasn't the obstacle that it is right now, I mean, how could a rational, just, democratic, and socialist society grapple with a crisis of the scale of, of the climate change crisis? Well, I'm glad you asked, but I want to answer not by hypothesizing how it might be. Let me tell you how it has been, because that'll drive home the point to people that we've already done what needs to be done here. We have already shown it can be done, and we have shown that if we stay with it, we can keep a success in this area from being undone. And I'm going to use one of many examples, but it's one I alluded to earlier in my chocolate example, so I'm going to go back to it. Child labor. It used to be the norm here in American capitalism, and indeed in the capitalism in many countries, that capitalists made use of children, and the reasons were simple. Number one, you could get away with paying children less wages than adults. Why? Because children were felt to be obligations by their parents who made sure or tried to that they were fed and clothed and sheltered in a reasonable way so that the employer wasn't in the position of having to provide the basics but could pay much less. Pin money, they used to say when they did this to women, or childhood change for a kid. And then you could listen to the employer talk the PR that the lobbyists for child labor then, like now, say. Look what a wonderful thing this is. These are poor families. They would be poorer still if they couldn't send their children out to work. So the employer is really, get ready for this, helping poor people by hiring the children that he puts to work. And I won't talk about the abuse physical mental, sexual, that the children regularly suffered. And you know, at a certain point, even with all the lobbying and all the bought politicians who carefully looked the other way or mouthed these justifications, the mass of people suffering what was happening to their children rose up and said, there cannot be child labor anymore, over a hundred years ago in this country. 
And the employers said, oh, don't be crazy. That's not, no, we're not hurting the children. The children are learning skills on and on. And it took a long fight. And then they threatened these businesses. If you make us give up the children, well, then we'll go out of business. And then we'll fire all the adults too. So you better let us keep the children because everybody else is dependent. In other words, the profiteer threatens, if you don't let us profiteer, well, then you will suffer. The ultimate outrage of this system. And Americans, like in many other countries, persevered. They said, we don't care. You're not going to abuse our children anymore. And they got the laws passed over the objecting politicians. You can't hire children below a certain age. You can't make them work in these conditions between ages this and that, etc., etc. And after all the complaining and all the howling, did capitalism fall apart when child labor was outlawed? No. Did all the industries that threatened to go out of business go out of business when child labor was outlawed? No. I could go on. I could go on. A social movement is what we need. A social movement that says, for example, you can't hire African children to make the chocolate. You can't do that. Either you hire adults and pay them properly, or you don't have the chocolate business anymore. And it's the same thing. Either you take care of the fossil fuel issue, stop burning it, stop polluting, stop destroying, or else we're not going to let you function as an enterprise. We will look for our energy some other way. And you know what? We'll find it. We'll find it in the wind. We'll find it in solar. We'll find it in the oceans. We'll find it without doing what you're constantly blackmailing us into letting you go ahead and damage us. Social movements are the way to solve social problems. Pollution, climate change, obscenely rich corporations, those are all problems we share. They are not personal problems, they are social problems. And the way you solve a social problem is with a social movement. That's always been the way it is. No individual is adequate to do that. It's a myth to imagine otherwise. The movement to change ecological destruction is already strong in the world. That's why they have to mobilize 2,000 lobbyists at enormous expense to try to hold back because it's late in the day for them. We're in the ascendant, those of us that are critical and that want change. They're defensive, trying desperately to hold on to another few years of record profits. That's why the war in Ukraine, for example, is supported by them, because it's a way of holding back progress on the ecological front because of something which, by the way, is ecologically destructive in and of itself, as well as pushing away from the headlines the issue of ecological destruction, even though it affects more people than the war in Ukraine, etc. 
That's the solution, is to develop the social movements. And that's why there is a COP. That's why those lobbyists are there. And we shouldn't lose heart. Yeah, we'll have some reverses. Yeah, they're going to use wild amounts of money. But that's not been strong enough. They couldn't keep the child labor, and they will not keep the destruction of our natural environment either. An extremely important point. That's all the time we have today. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf, the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.